The title of our message today is, What in the World Are Heavenly Rewards? And that's not a disrespectful title. It is a play on words. What in the world are heavenly rewards? Because it is in this world that you establish your heavenly rewards. As far as I know, when you get to heaven, you don't have a chance to get more rewards. Maybe you do. I don't know. But we know that in this world, what you do right now, you can be rewarded in heaven. And things that you do that could normally get a reward are going to be tested. And if they, are, if they fall lacking, you're not going to receive a reward for it. So maybe you do something for someone that is in need. You come alongside and help them. Uh, and the Bible says you're going to be rewarded for that. And we'll cover a little bit of that today. But you did it for the wrong motive. You did it because, you know what? People saw me give. I'm going to go tell everybody how I helped that person out. So everybody is saying, you know, I was helping a poor person out the other day. No, you can't stop talking about it. So we get into heaven, the fire tests it, and it's all wood, hay, and stubble because you did it for the wrong motive. So not only do you have to do the things that will allow you to be able to be rewarded, you've got to do it with the right motives. And we're going to cover those today. But before we do that, it's really important for us to understand a couple of things. Number one, there are a lot of passages that talk to us about heavenly rewards. Not just a couple, a lot of them. Uh, I want to just give you an example of one. This is Matthew 5, 11 and 12. It says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, which I find that most people don't do when they're persecuted. For great is your reward in heaven. God promises a great reward for those who are persecuted. The Bible promises a great reward for those who are martyred. There's a martyr's reward up in heaven. And there have been many over the centuries that have been martyred for the sake of Christ. And they will receive a reward for that. I also want to give you a principle. And then I want to give you a couple passages to help understand this principle. We are saved by his work. And we receive rewards by our works. We are not saved by our works. In our study on Wednesday night in Galatians chapter 2, Paul ends the chapter by saying, I will not set aside the grace of God. He's talking about legalists who, who are trying to add to, to how you get saved. And grace simply means undeserved favor. So Paul says, I will not lay aside the undeserved favor to try to follow after your legalistic way in which you can be saved. Uh, we can't get saved by our works. Our works, we want to faithfully work for Christ after we're saved because we're his now. And it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you guys know this passage well, because I quote it a lot. You have been saved by grace through faith, not of any works, lest anyone should boast. It takes away all boasting. In 1 Corinthians 3, 15, it says, if anyone's work is burned, this is what I was talking about earlier, he will suffer loss. If you do those good things, but you're doing them with the wrong motives and they're burnt, you will suffer loss. You'll lose your rewards. But he himself will be saved yet as though through fire, meaning you're going to barely make it into heaven. And if the choice between barely make it into heaven and not make it into heaven at all, it's good to barely make it into heaven, right? If that's your choice and because of that, you're going to get rewards. You have eternity, you have Christ, you have God, you live with him forever. We go on into eternity, which is a bit of a mystery. We don't know all that we're going to be doing. 
What I do know for you golfers here is you're not going to be golfing for all of eternity, all right? So I hear that all the time from people. Or that we're gonna, I'm going to fish all of eternity. I'm going to be catching, you know, 10-pound largemouth bass. No, that's probably not what heaven's going to be like, all right? There's a mystery to it, but it's not those kind of things. Uh, so what I want to do is get into this text. This is the parable of the stewards. There are 10 stewards that are brought before a nobleman, and each one of them are given a certain amount of money, and they are responsible to invest that while the nobleman goes on a trip and comes back again with the kingdom. That's the parable of the steward. We're covering that today. It's very much like the parable of the talents. A talent is a, is a form of money. No, it's a weight of money, a weight of gold, a weight of silver. A mina, which we're reading about today, is a coin. So it's the same thing, basically. It's just a different way of saying uh, they received a certain amount of money. And both the talent they receive and the mina they receive is significant. Ten minas would be enough to live in their day for three years. So it's a significant amount of money. And um, let's, let's just get right into this. So uh, here's what I, I want to cover the, the text. I want to talk about what we can. At the end, I want to talk some about rewards. How much we can talk about rewards will depend on how fast I make it through this text. All right. So we'll start in verse 11. This is the beginning of it. And this tells us why he gave this parable. It says, now, as they heard these things, they had heard that Zacchaeus, a rich man, had just gotten saved. Jesus declared salvation has come to his house. They're now on their way to Jerusalem, where on the day of, on Palm Sunday, he will ride in with salvation. So salvation in Jericho, as he leaves it, the next city is Jerusalem. He rides in with salvation. Now, as he heard these things about Zacchaeus, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom would appear immediately. They didn't know there was going to be a 2,000 plus year gap. We're, we're kind of under a 2,000 year gap right now, but they didn't know it. You and I know it. The Old Testament, we can see it clearly, talks about the suffering Messiah and then the ruling and reigning Messiah. We know that he would come the first time suffering. The second time he will return, he will rule and reign. They didn't know that. They thought they were going to Jerusalem and Jesus was going to kick the Romans out. They had their expectations for, for them to be able to help them overcome the Romans, which was brutal. But he had a larger plan to forgive the sins of all mankind forever, to make provision for the forgiveness of sins of all mankind forever. They think he's going to go and deliver them from the Romans. So he wants to correct their expectations. That's what he's doing with this parable. So he says, therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom and return. Now, in Jericho, Herod Archelaus had a palace. Herod Archelaus was put into Herod's uh, will, for lack of a better word, uh, for lack of knowing the word they would use, was put into his will that he would become king. But he refused it from his father because he wanted Rome to give him to be a king. So Archelaus had left Jericho in his palace gone to Rome to receive his kingship, but they only made him tetrarch. They didn't really trust him. And rightfully so, he would be removed later on. But, but they would think of a nobleman. They would be looking at Archelaus's palace in Jericho. They would be making some kind of a connection that you and I wouldn't necessarily make. He went into a far to receive a kingdom. Jesus says a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom. So he called 10 servants and delivered to them 10 minas. 
and said to them, do business until I come. Now the 10 servants get one mina each and they have to go out and do business until he, come, until he returns with the kingdom. This is a picture of Jesus ascending up into heaven, giving us the Holy Spirit, calling us, giving us gifts, doing works in our lives so that we would do the gospel. We are the church. We are the ecclesia. The ecclesia is not just the synagogue of the Old Testament. The ecclesia is a Greek word that is a, was a group of people gathered together from the city that, made, that had authority to make decisions for the city. The closest thing we have to it today is the city council. We have a city council in Tucson. I'm not saying anything else about them. <laughs> we have a city council in Tucson. There's a city council in Oro Valley. I know one of the, the guys that's on the council in Oro Valley. He's a friend. So there are city councils that are around. We, the church, are the city council from heaven. We belong to heaven. That's our home. And we are the ecclesia, the, 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 the city council from heaven. And we are operating here on earth to win people into the kingdom. We have responsibility. So we've been given minus a mina that we want to multiply and offer back to the king when he comes. And so it says, and so it was when he returned. Oh, excuse me. I, I missed verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, there are some suggestions that this might have happened with Archelaus. Archelaus was a creep. He was a horrible guy. A lot of the Herods were. Archelaus was one of Herod the Great's sons. And he was not a good guy. And it could be that they sent a delegation to Rome saying, we don't want this guy as king. And that's why he made them tetrarch instead of king. Possible. But this is a representation of people who say to God, I don't want you to reign over us. And he adds this in for a specific reason. We're going to get back to it. There are three people represented in this parable. Those who don't want God to reign over them, those who are his servants, and those who are a false servant. And we'll get back to that in a moment. So then in verse 15, and so it was that when he returned and having received the kingdom, he then commanded the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how each one had gained trading. Whatever God's given you, whatever talents, whatever gifts, and they do vary. Remember the parable of the talents? One receives 10, one receives five, another receives one. You, we, we don't all get the same talents. They all had the same mina. They're all going to have gain, but that mina might be represented differently. And if you're a one-talent person, you don't have to make as, do as much as a five-talent person or a 10-talent person. If you're a 10-talent person, you have to be faithful to all God's given you. And I just say that because one of the things that causes people to not want to do anything for God is you just feel like I can't. Who am I? You're, you're a child of God. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You're a part of the ecclesia. So you're not Billy Graham. Who is? Right? And so be faithful with what God's given you. You don't have to be faithful for my call. I don't have to be faithful for Greg Laurie's call. You just have to be faithful to your call. I just got to be faithful to my call. That's all. And so the mine is gained. And I love that. He wanted to find out how much did you gain from the mina. Then in verse 16, they came, then came first, the first saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. That's pretty good. Tenfold. Look at what he gets, though. And he said to him, well done, sir, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. This mina was very little, about four months worth of living, each mina. 
because you are faithful in very little, have authority over 10 cities. Wow. The rewards that we get are not even to be compared to what we have been given. We're given something, and then there's a reward that's far greater. That's pretty amazing. He's given one mina, and he, be ten he makes it 10 cities that he gets. It's pretty amazing. And I think that we're going to think that about our rewards eventually as well. And he said, to, and, and the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said, you also be over five cities. And this might be the rewards, by the way. Greater responsibility in the millennium and in heaven, in eternity. Now, I know when I bring that up to some people, they'll say, I don't want greater responsibility. I want to fish the whole time I'm there. I don't want to have responsibility over 10 cities. But remember, this is, heaven is a mystery. And we don't know exactly what it all means. But it seems to me this is the best argument for rewards is greater responsibility. You made five minas, you're over five cities. Now, uh, we know that the apostles, the disciples are going to rule over Israel in the millennium. And Pastor Chuck Smith, who founded Calvary Chapel in, I think, 1969, he claimed Hawaii, so you can't get Hawaii. He says that he's going to rule Hawaii over the millennium. We, we, of course, don't know exactly what it all means, right? There's a mystery to it. So then in verse 20, and, um, and another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept and put away in a handkerchief. So he's like the guy with the talent who buried it in Matthew 25. But he put it in a handkerchief, hid it away and kept it safe. And here's why. I feared you because you were, are an austere man. Austere means severe, quick-tempered, um, not always fair. It's a pejorative term. Because I knew, and, and remember, parables don't always take the person that's represented and all the characteristics don't, you know, don't transfer over to that person. So because the nobleman represents Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus is austere. I don't think you could describe Jesus as being austere in any way, shape or form. But this nobleman is, okay? And maybe he's not, but this servant thinks he is. People have a lot of misunderstandings about Christ and a lot of misunderstandings about God. Maybe that's what this, this servant had. He says, for I, um, you, because you are an austere man, you collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Nice claiming a little bit of unfairness. Whatever you do, you, do, you get the Midas touch. And so I was afraid. And then he said, out of your mouth, I will judge you. Jesus made reference to this at another point, that we are going to be judged by the words that we say. Now, that's a frightening thing to me at times. I don't know, knowing that verse well, I don't know if you've ever been saying something maybe talking about somebody in a negative way. And then you realize I do the same thing. And then I thought, and God said, he's going to judge me by my words. And I'll change. I'll actually add words to it. I'll start to soften it. However, who knows? No one knows the heart. And, you know, so you're I'm realizing I know if God's going to judge me by my words, let me give him more words to add to that so that I can so I can soften it. I probably just should say, you know what? Sorry, I shouldn't be gossiping about this guy because only God knows his heart. That's really what I should say at a particular time in a moment like that. But he says, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. Now, in the parable of the talents, this servant is cast into outer darkness. So he's not really a Christian. And I think this wicked servant isn't really a Christian either. We know that the church has wheat and tares. Remember that parable? That the church has genuine and not genuine believers. 
If you've never heard that before, there's parables that talk about the fact that there are people that really love Christ in churches, but the enemy's going to plant people who don't. And there's people who think they are. Some are going to come to him and say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. And not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, you have to make sure you are genuinely saved. So this guy wrapped up his talent, said, I was afraid of you because you're austere. And then, then he says to him, you knew I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. And um, when you, uh, when, what, why then did you put the money in a bank that I, my coming I might have collected with interest? So he's like, you didn't need to make a bunch with it, but I could have at least have collected with interest. And so God's looking for this from us, that we would be faithful to receive the rewards. And I think we want the rewards. Rewards are, we reward our kids to correct their behavior. Uh, we reward employees to correct their behavior. God rewards us to correct our behavior. We want the rewards that he gives. When we are compared to athletes, the Bible says when an athlete runs, he's disciplined so he can win a wreath that perishes. In their day, when you won in the Olympiad, they gave you a little woven together wreath when you won first place. He says that perishes. We're running for that which doesn't perish, Paul said. Therefore, be like the athlete. Be disciplined in your life because we're running for something that's far more important. And we'll talk about what those rewards may be here in a moment. Now, um, verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas, which seems unfair. We're like, why take it and give it to the guy that has five minas? Why give it to the guy that has 10? He has 10. When God chooses to put grace upon one person, often we can get upset because God didn't choose to give that grace to us. God does things different than we do it. Remember the parable where the parable of the hiring, the hired servants, he hires one guy to work all day, another guy to work a half day, another guy to work an hour. When it comes time to get paid, the guy that worked an hour gets paid first and he gets a full day's wages. And the other two guys behind him are like, and the next guy gets up there, he worked a half day, he gets a full day's wages. When the guy who worked a full day's wages gets up there, he gets a full day's wages and he's upset. He only worked an hour. You gave him more. I should get more. And the owner of the land says, didn't I contract with you for a day's wages? I've done nothing unfair to you. You worked for me for a day's wages and I gave you a day's wages. It just speaks of when God does blessings or maybe even difficulties in other people's lives, that's none of our business. God's being fair to us and keep focused on it. And, and then he brings a principle. Um, the Bible says in Luke 12, 48, for every, everyone to whom much is given, to him much is required. So the guy with 10 minus was required more because he was given, now he has 10 minus, to whom much is given, much is required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So he's giving it to the guy that he knows can do the best with it. And this may speak of a, of a principle, be faithful in the little things, and God will make you uh, allow you greater things. So be faithful. Don't just think it's a small thing. I don't have to be faithful in it. Be faithful in the very small things. The Bible says, don't despise the days of small beginnings. And it's, a, it's a test. God's just testing to see whether or not he's going to give you more, whether or not you've got the character, the heart, the desire to be able to do more for him. So don't despise those days. Now, finally, in the parable, it comes to this horrible ending Remember the people that said, that sent a delegation, we don't want this man to rule over us. 
Here's what, Jesus, here's what the nobleman says. This is not necessarily Jesus, but it's the nobleman. But bring here these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And here it would speak of, of Jesus going and getting a kingdom and returning as the judge. Jesus said in John 5, 22, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. It is the son who's going to judge. In Psalms 2, this is Old Testament, right? And there are several little sections in there about the son of God in Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. It says, who is the son of God? Can you tell me his name? Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Make peace with the son because he is the judge. Now, a lot of people don't like the fact that God's his judge. I'm having kind of an ongoing conversation with someone right now who tells me, I don't know that I can follow God because I don't like the fact that he's a judge. I, I, my, I argue with them a little bit. You don't like judges at all in general? Don't think we should have judges at all in general? Because God judges the wicked. There's a lot of wicked things happening every night around the world. There are horrible things happening that need to have justice take place. And you don't like the fact that God's going to hold people accountable for what they do. And that just means he holds everyone accountable. And that maybe is the part we don't like. But God's completely fair. Remember that in the end, he is completely fair. Now, I don't want to talk. We'll talk about judgment, the judgment of God later. All right. But now I want to talk about rewards. So that's the end of the parable. And we see clearly that we are rewarded for the things that we do. And this is what's being spoken about there. So first of all, the Bible clearly tells us that we get rewards. I'm not going to go over all the passages. I wrote them out in my notes, but I, I realize my notes are way too long for the amount of time I have to be able to preach. And I'm not going to go over all of them. If you want to look up rewards and look at these passages, uh, let me just give you one of them. Paul is in prison and he's ministered. To, this is the end of his, his life. And he's ministered to a little poor city named Philippi. And Philippi is the only church who gave him anything while he was in prison. From out of Corinth, the churches in Galatia, um, Colossae, only, um, Ephesus, only Philippi shared with him there. And Paul says, I'm so thankful for your gift. Not that I seek your gift, but the fruit that abounds to your account. And that's Philippians 4.17. And we have many other passages like that. Our works will be rewarded. And then in heaven, there will be the Bema judgment seat. The, the rewards at, a, at the Olympiad was called the Bema seat. And in each city, there was a Bema seat judgment. There was the great judgment seat of, of Caesar. That's like the great white judgment throne. And then there's the Bema seat, which judges all the things that we do, our rewards. And as I said, the rewards that we get are going to be tested. They're going to be piled up, lit on fire. And if you had the wrong motives, if you were doing something out of selfish ambition, if you were doing something because to be seen by men, if you were doing something so you could tell people the good things you did, it's going to be lit on fire and go away. And some are going to have it completely burned up. Be saved as though through fire. But most people are going to have something to remain. I think Billy Graham's stuff, Dale Moody's stuff, Charles Spurgeon's stuff, F.B. Meyer, these great men of the past, is going to be piled up, going to be lit on fire, and a lot of wood stay hand stubble is going to be burned away because they did things in front of men. Jesus said, when you do something in front of men and they tell you how good it is, you've already received your reward. 
So a lot of what somebody does in public, people come up and go, that was so awesome. Thanks for stealing my reward. Great. <laughs> now I don't get anything for it. But everybody, I mean, we just, man's heart, right? And there's nobody, there's nobody who's so good that everything's going to be lit on fire and the whole thing's going to remain. We're all going to have some wood, hay, and stubble in there. We're all going to be doing things for, through selfish ambition. Now, how do we get these rewards? The Bible promises them, how do we get them? I think, first of all, if we stand back and go, if I do things for Christ, and if I love the people around me, I'm going to get rewards. I don't know that I got to memorize every place in the Bible where it says, do this and you're going to get a reward for it. Just stand back, do things for Christ, and love people, and there will be rewards that will come. But let me just give you a, a few quickly that the Bible tells us we're going to be rewarded for so you can get an idea of the type of things the Bible says we're going to get rewards for. Number one, giving to the needs of others. In Matthew 10, 42, it says, if you give a cold glass of water in a disciple's name, you will not lose your reward. That tells us the rewards are, are we're not going to lose them. And it also tells us it can be very small because who can't give a cold glass of water to someone who's thirsty. So don't think so big and significant. Think, what can I do? It's very important. Uh, also, in the name of the disciple, you don't have to give them the water and say, in the name of a disciple, I give you water in order to get your reward. All right? It just simply means you're a disciple and you're doing it in the name of, the, of a disciple. That's all it means. doesn't mean you're telling them. Okay? Um, Living for Christ, even when you're treated badly. I read that passage earlier. When you are persecuted for him, you will receive rewards. So when people mistreat you at work or in your home, family, because you're a Christian, there are rewards. Financial generosity. I won't cover all the passages. There are too many. Just two categories. Making friends with heaven, with your mammon, with your stuff and your money. Making friends for heaven, which may end up being one of the rewards, by the way, that we know that we have helped people get to heaven. And when we get there, there are friends. That's a pretty significant thought. Um, hanging on to the truth, John, 2 John 1, 7 and 8. I really won't expound on that here. Prayer in private. Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites and pray out on the street corner, but go into your room and pray when you're alone. Somehow we think if we could get 20 really righteous people together, then that's how God would answer prayer. But Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room, shut your door and pray to God who sees you in secret and God will reward you openly. Your promise for this hidden prayer that no one knows to get an answer for that prayer. That's pretty significant. And maybe instead of trying to find people, will you pray with me? Will you pray with me? Just go in your closet. Something's on your heart. Call out to God where no one sees. And then when your husband says, where, where were you? Oh, in the closet. <laughs> oh, of course you were. Uh, I didn't mean anything by that, by the way. <laughs> um, hospitality. Jesus said, when you invite people over for a feast, don't just invite the people who can invite you back. So when you're being hospitable towards people, be hospitable towards those who are poor, to those who can't help you. Loving your enemy. Jesus said, love your enemy, bless those who curse you. You're going to be rewarded for that. Do you have an enemy? How about a lot of enemies? It's an opportunity to love them, to receive rewards. Loving the unlovable. Jesus said, even the, the, the ungodly love, the unlo the, um, love people who love them back. What good is that to you but love the unlovable? 
being faithful with what God has given you. That's just a few examples. So what could hurt our rewards? If those are things we can do to, to get them, what can hurt them? Number one, not doing those things, okay, that we just talked about. Number two, selfish ambition. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, do nothing through selfish ambition. This ought to be a plaque that is on the pulpit of every preacher that ever preaches. Do nothing through selfish ambition. It ought to be for Christ. This is not something that's easy because we want to be, you know, seen by men. We want things to be effective. We want things to be efficient. It can easily be the wrong motive. I can honestly say that I've done things because of selfish ambition, and I think every pastor has, and it's something we have to evaluate. Narcissism, pastors who are narcissistic, it's a big problem. You know who Narciss was? He was a, a Greek god who was good-looking, and he wandered into a cave, and he found a pool of water in a cave. It was really still, and he looked at himself. He thought, hey, that's a good-looking good guy. And he stared into the water until he died. He got so enamored with himself that he didn't eat or drink anything and just died. That's narcissism. You get so enamored with yourself. And I think there's a lot of narcissism today, especially with social media. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm pointing fingers with fingers being pointed back to me, okay? There's a lot of narcissism today that can take place but because of social media. We even make ourselves look better. It's like, well, I don't look, I'm going to make myself, I look better. I can go look better than that. And uh, then we stare at it forever looking for responses. How many likes did I get? How many likes did I get? Until you die. Uh, <laughs> don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Do it. Try to do it from an honest heart. And I'm, again, not telling you that as someone who's never had selfish ambition. Okay, I think everybody has, especially everybody who's been in any leadership role. It's something you struggle with. Uh, don't do things to be seen by men. Matthew 6, 1. When you pray, don't, don't do it to be seen by men. When you fast, don't do it to be seen by men. Not for personal profit. That's 1 Peter 5, 2. When you're doing what you do for God, don't do it for dishonest gain. A lot of people have done things for God for dishonest gain. Uh, and be faithful to the things that God's called you to do. Those are the things are not being faithful to what God's called you to do. Those are the things that can hurt your reward. Now let's talk really quickly about what those rewards are or what they're not, first of all. So usually when you have a message on rewards, they're going to say something like, there's five crowns in the Bible and these are five crowns are your rewards. The five crowns are these, righteousness, rejoicing, life, imperishable, and glory. There's a crown of glory, an imperishable crown, crown of life, crown of rejoicing, crown of righteousness. And people will say, well, these are our rewards. And I'm not quite sure what they mean. Am I going to go to my closet in heaven? Which crown do I want to put on today? The crown of righteousness. That's the one that I'm going to wear around heaven today. Um, none of these are, we get righteousness from God. We rejoice because of our in Christ. We have life because of him and it's imperishable because it's imperishable. None of those are rewards. Only the crown of glory is a reward. And the crown of glory, it says, for those who lead people to Christ, I'm paraphrasing it, for those who lead people to Christ, you will receive the crown of glory. So God wants to give a special reward when you live your life as a witness, as a testimony to him, you plant, you water. Doesn't mean you get people set, you pray for people to be saved. It simply means you plant, you water, you live your life so people can see Christ. You care about the lost. That's the only reward that I see. Uh, we talked about rewards being an increased responsibility in the millennium and in eternity. That could be one of them. Another one could be friends in heaven. That could be our reward. We do what we do for God here today. And when we get to heaven, God says, 
these are your friends here because you lived your life and they were influenced by you in one way or another and they're here partially because of you. That would be great. That'd be a wonderful reward, wouldn't it? That we lived our lives in such a way. Uh, the Bible says that those who win many to the Lord will shine like the stars forever in Daniel chapter 12. That would be a great reward. I think that could be it. But there's one more, and that is that in Revelation, there's 24 elders who are there and they cast their crowns before the throne of God, before the Lamb. Now, who are these 24 elders? We really don't know, but I'll tell you who I think it is. And I'll even tell you my deep theological reasoning to get me to this spot. So there were 12 disciples and there were 12 tribes of Israel who were the 12 sons of Jacob. There's 24 elders. So I think it's Israel and the church. 24, you know, disciples and 24 elders. Is there any passage in the Bible that points to that? Is there any evidence that I have at all that can make a reference that that's who these guys are? No. My simple reason is 12 and 12 is 24. There's 24 of them. Must be the same people. By the way, that's really ba a bad way to form your theology. It doesn't mean I'm wrong, but it's a really bad way to build theology. You just don't want to be too dogmatic when, when you do things that way. All right? But what interests me is that these 24 elders cast their crowns before the Lord. And I'm wondering if when our motives are tested, our, our, our works are tested, and some gold, silver, and jewels remain, that we might have something to offer back to Christ in eternity. To say, Lord, you blessed me and you loved me and I did this work for you and this is yours. And we, we toss it back before the throne. And around the throne is the rewards of the saints. I don't know. Maybe. I like that idea. I like it the very best because what do we need rewards in heaven for? We have him. We have it all. We have everything, right? And, but God did give it to us to motivate us. So let's live wholeheartedly for the reward. I want to close out with this. Only the things done for Christ will remain. That's a quote that I tried to look who said it. It's attributed to several different people, but only the things done for Christ will remain. So do what you do for Christ. When you're working your job, the Bible says, don't do it for your boss, do it for Jesus. You got a horrible boss. You say, I don't want to work hard for him. I, he's awful. He's the worst manager ever. No, I worked for the worst manager ever. But do it to Christ and you're doing the best you can for that guy, not because he deserves it as a boss, but because you're doing it for Christ. You say, my kids have hit the teen years and they are ungrateful, unthankful. I can't believe my children turned into this. I want to make them lousy lunches. <laughs> no, make lunches like you're making lunches for Jesus and you'll be rewarded for it. The Bible says that. Do everything you do for Christ. If that's the case, how can you not be rewarded if that's your true heart? Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage. It's rich. We thank you for all you're doing. We pray that we would continue to grow in you. Thank you that you allow us to work for you. You could easily just say, just stand back, let me do it. But you let us be involved in it. And that's a great blessing. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.